Hey, Rob. Kevin, how are you? I'm good. I'm good. There's a, there was a new episode of Star Trek this week, so it's always a good week when that's true. It is always a good week when Star Trek is back on our TVs. Well, we are immediately going to go off on a tangent of how Star Trek belongs on TV, and it is so good that it is back in that form in our lives. But maybe let's save that for another time. <laughs> Definitely. Let's just say we agree to agree. Yeah. Let's talk about Strange New Worlds, Season 1, Episode 8, The Elysian Kingdom, which is the one we are jumping into here with, I guess you would call this the cage of whatever this podcast is going to be. This is, may be our, our unaired pilot. Very much so. Very much so. Although I am hoping that we keep our full cast as opposed to everyone being replaced except for one of us being the Leonard Nimoy of yes. the... That would be a I, really awkward first podcast after this, where it's just one of us is a replacement going, hi. Well, I did want to warn you that I'm planning to come back for the proper show with no emotions. <laughs> Can you really promise that though? <laughs> talking, talking clinically unemotional and completely logical when it comes to Star Trek. I'll still have them. You just won't be able to see them. It'll be an internal battle. Vulcans, another topic for another time. <laughs> Let's talk about Dr. Mabenga's sojourn on the magically transformed USS Enterprise that we got this week. This has been the show that we've all been talking about as in going, and even a lot of the reviews online have been going... Because we've been so used to over the last couple of years with this week-to-week -week release of TV shows yeah. of that week-to-week -week review of it. And people have been have their highs and lows and ups and downs of particular shows. But with yeah. Strange New Worlds, it was this unique anomaly, really, of week one came. Everyone went, that's a really solid start. Week two, yeah. that's a really solid. And kept on going along and people going, this like we're six, seven episodes in and They've been just all killer, no filler. And we're just going, this, this can't keep up though. Like modern television just doesn't do that. We have been trained or we have learnt from the excessive amounts of streaming television content. Yeah. It can't all be good. Yeah. And so episode eight, the Elysium Kingdom came out and although not up to the same standard as I okay. think some of the other stories, I did enjoy it. It was yeah. very much that you, you messaged you know, had the word bottle episode. It was a little bit bodily because it was all contained on the set. It was a little bit mixed up. The episodes are like, it's not that particular format where shaking things up a bit. This would be the equivalent of a, a holodeck, holosuite episode of, a, you know, Next Gen or, yeah. or Deep Space Nine. If they had had the holodeck, they might have used it, but they don't have it. So they got creative. So they, Yeah. And, and that's something I'd like to talk about later. But yeah, I enjoyed it. I didn't find it to the same... I don't know, quality or standard is a bit harsh, but yeah, yeah, it was definitely, I loved it. And there was a lot of great stuff in there, but there's stuff that really moved me in, in, in previous episodes, but I th still think the standard is, is very, very high. It was much yeah. better than a lot of other television out there. What about you? I enjoyed it a lot. I think I got to the end of it and said to no one in particular, I want to watch that again right away. <laughs> and I will, I will agree with you that it was maybe not as meaningful as the word I'm going for or uh, consequential. Mm. It felt a little inconsequential as an episode, which is a weird thing to say about an episode where a child's entire future existence hung in the balance and, and changed pretty drastically. Well, there was uh, a point where I'm there going, are we going to see our second child 
mm. you know, fatality. I do an in inverted yeah. commas in the space yeah. of three weeks. I'm going, oh, okay. Is this the, is this the way that strange new worlds is leaning into? Yes. But I, I think it was the tone that, that gave it that feel that it, it was a child's storybook tone yes. through the whole thing. And for, for most of this episode, I was leaning forward going, I don't know what's going on. Yes. But I can tell they're doing this perfectly. Yes. I mean, and, uh, what I love about these type of episodes, especially yeah. with the holodeck ones, yeah. you've, I, I don't know how you, cause when it comes to specifics, but from my knowledge of say Deep Space Nine and stuff like that, these type of yeah. episodes came in a bit later when all the characters were well-established, whereas we're only yes. eight episodes. I think we're going to talk about that of like, where in the series does a breaking the pattern episode come? Because I think I agree with you. There's the early ones that are meant to be character revealing. Yes. The, the naked time, the naked now, those ones that like lower our characters barriers really early in the series to reveal their unvarnished selves. And we get to know them really quickly. Definitely. And there's. There's the late series ones that are like, the writers are kind of like, what else can we do? And something wild is put on the table. And also, cause we know the characters so well. So yes. to take them out and put them in a different personality or a mirror universe episode, you go, oh, this is enjoyable. Cause I know this yes. character so well. And especially with the first seven episodes, we've had a lot of time with Pike. We've had a lot of time with Spock. We've had a lot of time with. Una, we've had a bit of time with La'an. I'm still waiting on my Ortega scented mm -hmm. episode. She was in this a lot, but not as herself. Yeah, that's the thing. I was there going, <laughs> we're getting a lot of her, but we haven't yeah. had much of Ortega yeah. beforehand. So it hit me well, but if we'd had that come in, say, you know, a season two or yeah. something like that, we would have had, okay, now we know all the crew and this is even more enjoyable because it is so far. I mean, it was great seeing you know, Pike play the sniveling, underhanded, backhanded Chamberlain type uh -huh. character. And that was so clear. And also Cancel seeing- Cancel the court jester. Exactly. <laughs> or seeing Ethan, Ethan Peck with very nice long hair and the yes. wizard rugged look. That was, that was particularly impressive. Yes. Were you disappointed that Spock's wizard, uh, Pollux, didn't do any actual magic? It was interesting because I had so much fun with, I loved Hammer's enjoyment of playing the the magic side of him doing scientific yeah. stuff so yeah it would have been good to see spock try that but then it would have opened a whole other can of worms of going you know is the magic coming from you know deborah i'm putting up the yes. commas yes, again yes. or but yeah him just standing there broody with a five o'clock shadow i was all right man. <laughs> my partner, Jess went, mm, yes, please. And I said, I think it's like Spock meets Jon Snow was the look that we were getting. There. Yeah. Yeah. You know, everything, <laughs> you know, everything, you know everything, Mr. Spock, Mr. Spock, but there was so much fun stuff in there. And like, it was, yeah. you know, the, the sword fighting was great. And it's a very Star Trekky thing where, you know, this unusual fantasy esque type different genre invades the very clinical, scientific, hopeful world of Star Trek and yeah. how they approach it from that. Okay. Well, we are in this situation where there are wizards and there is sword fighting. Let's look upon this in a clinical, straightforward manner and let's solve it. And so going through those steps, which has been done in all Star Trek shows when they have these type of episodes. And I love yeah. to see how each individual thing, I think Hammer 
embraced it so much more because of course Benanga was doing it more from a, an emotional point of view to uh -huh. find his child but that play when they go okay this is what we have this is the parameters we have and how you play within that that's what I like to see when they start to muck around with it this episode felt like a flex to me in that like they are showing it's almost as if they set the challenge for themselves this season how can we make every episode completely different from every other episode very much so no two the same there is no formula the formula is breaking the formula yeah it feels very much to me i'm breaking into a different franchise here like doctor yeah. who doctor yeah. who has been able to last 60 years because it can adapt to genres so very much you know the william hartnell era was educational historical stories the patrick troughton era was monster of the week a b-grade sci-fi john pertwee era was james bond espionage type action the avengers style thing and then tom baker had three different genres but his main one was gothic horror which this is it they've had this established format of a better word for star trek and they've infused like even in the gorn episode they had two genres they had horror and you know submarine drama going yeah. on at so they've really gone this is the format that everyone pretty much knows everyone has their roles but each genre is so different from episode to episode i'm starting to think that Instead of Strange New Worlds, this is Strange New Star Trek. <laughs> On the one hand, I don't know what I'm going to see, and I am here for it. I am almost disappointed, though, that if that if this is the show for that, does it mean that the other new Star Trek shows are less varied? Because this this show is is hogging the variety for itself. <laughs> yeah, the, are you saying there's only you know uh, so much variety the that can go around? Yes. Harry Mudd comedy episodes aside, which Discovery had early on, all the other Star Trek series, at least all the other live action ones, are very like tell one story season long arc and therefore is somewhat confined to one genre, yeah. or one format for, for their stories. This is the one that's free of that. And they're doing more than just telling episodic stories that need to be wrapped up by the end of the episode. They are using it to break the format every single week. Yeah, definitely. And they're still bringing in that expectation in little increments that modern fans have come to expect. So we are getting those little tidbits of story arc. So we always mm. return to Pike's dilemma. We return a little bit to, you know, Spock's. We all know it's doomed to fail, obviously, because, yeah. we, <laughs> you know, it's Star Wars prequel stuff. We're going, well, we know it's going to turn out. But yep. it's fun to see them make up and break up and make up mm. along the way. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, I'm rooting for them, even though I know it's hopeless. <laughs> that's that's what they've achieved. Yeah, we're talking about Spock and T'Pring, of course. Yes. Um, speaking of character arcs, that was the biggest surprise for me this episode, is that it drew a line, at least apparently, under Mabenga's character story. Every other character has been set up with this thing that seems like it might be solved by the end of the season. Yeah. But it feels more like this is the this is the question mark next to each character for the series. Mm. And for Mabenga's to be wrapped up apparently eight episodes in makes me wonder what is this character going to be between now and when we see him in the original series. And well that's the thing, because I mean, I think correct me if I'm wrong, he only had one appearance in the original series. 
I'll go along with that. Yeah. I might've guessed one or two. And in the cage, they had the old, you know, almost sea dog captain type yes. of doctor who's very much, you know, you need some, you need some medicine here, wet your whistle with handing him a <laughs> scotch or something. So maybe they're, you know, I haven't heard anything about announcements or casting or anything No, like no, that. don't, I don't want to let him go. He's such oh. an interesting texture to the show. He oh, plays... no, neither do I. I think he's a great character, but there is yeah. openness there for, you know. I want to see what's next for him because the, the idea, my child is dying and I'm searching for the cure felt like something that could go on for seasons mm. and it's, it's gone on for less than a season. So. What's next? We are very much out of that 90s era, late 80s, 90s era of Star Trek, where we go, well, we've got, you know, seven seasons, 24 episodes a season. So we can go through the process of, you know, well, Deep Space Nine doesn't get good until season four or whatever. We've got this case of, <laughs> nope, yeah. we've got 10 or 12 episodes for yes. this, I believe. So it's like all those arcs that would, back in the 90s, we had the glorious, you know, luxury of, having an arc that would, you know, come and go for six, seven years. You know, Julian yeah. Bashir's enhanced human arc yes. went on for the entire time. But Worf's um, family drama. Well, that, yep. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> the, the Klingon version of kitchen sink drama. It's very yes, much, yes. but yeah. So it's, again, it's that condensed nature of modern television to go. What would, what would go over a season of 24 episodes and probably over two or three seasons yeah. is now. No, we've had it. No time for it. No time for it. Showed up over eight episodes, but it only appears on an op for about three episodes. And I yeah. found it quite interesting because he started this journey with Una, but mm -hmm. for most of the episode, he was with Hamer. But at the end, Una came back. So it's that case of, yeah, where that consistency of his emotional you know, connection is. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. So this... This episode, we got to talking after we watched it and agreed that the fact that it blows up the format, or at least the expected format of an episode of Star Trek, is what stood out to us. And we thought to go back to the archives and see what episodes echoed in that way for us. Yes. Which were our favorite mixing it up, subvert expectations, blow up the standard format of the TV show. So we've got each our own lists. I've got at least three I can talk about. I've got at least three as well. All right. So have what's your earliest one in terms of which series it appears Okay. In? Look, Kevin, I am going to, I'm going to make a massive confession right here. My key era for me is Deep Space Nine. Okay. So I've seen that series back to front like three or four times. So all of mine, I just yeah. leaned into my D Space Nine. D Space Nine. All right. Not like I would say justifiable. <laughs> Deep Space Nine was probably the most creative, trope breaking or groundbreaking Star Trek series of all time. So, not surprising there would be a lot of mixing it up. But I'm going to pull us back to Next Generation before we go into DS9. Do we need to do the you know, flashback music? Oh, yeah. We're going to get some sound effects. Don't, don't you worry. <laughs> oh, I don't need to do the sound effects myself. <laughs> how, how cheap is that? You know, I'm opening up the, I'm opening up the, the sliding doors myself. I've actually, yeah. I'm a stagehand. Oh, we need some of those uh, holodeck doors that <laughs> exactly. Um, all right. TNG season five, episode 18 cause and effect is the first one that came to mind. This is the time loop episode where in the teaser before the opening credits, the enterprise is destroyed in a collision 
with a starship appearing out of a spatial rift. You remember this one? I I, I do not. My TNG okay. knowledge is quite limited, but you're selling it to me. Bring on, yeah. bring on, you know, convince me to, once I get off this, this podcast to go yes. and watch it and go, damn that Kevin, he was right. So yeah, cause and effect is a stuck in a time loop episode. Awesome. And an episode of Next Generation had a teaser and then it had four acts. And in cause and effect, each act was a, a time through the loop. So the episode starts, the Enterprise is attracted to a spatial disruption. They go up to it, a ship comes out and and collides into them and it, and the enterprise blows up cut to credits and you're like i still remember this was early 90s i still remember sitting there going holy crap the enterprise has exploded and they put extra money into this explosion it wasn't just the it wasn't just the firecracker going off overlaid on the model it was they built a model and filled it with fireworks and the nacelles went spinning through space it was it was shocking. And this is before, you know, dear listeners, this is before, you know, the reboot series of yes. movies where they pretty much destroyed the Enterprise every episode. Every time. Every, every, every time. Yeah. Every movie. You just go, well, you know, yeah. if you blow it up every movie, we're, we're just not going to be excited anymore. After the credits, you come back and the exact same sequence of events plays out before you. Love a time None loop. of the characters are aware that they are living the same events again. In fact, people watching this episode for the first time were deeply confused. They thought that the TV stations had gotten it wrong and were playing the episode from the beginning again. <laughs> Jonathan Frakes, who directed the episode, was careful to shoot the same scenes from different angles. And it was a kind of a game of how can we make the same events replay in a fresh way. Beautiful. But we see in much more detail the sequence of events that lead up to once again, the enterprise getting struck in space by another starship and blowing up. Yeah. And that's a bold move to, you yeah, because most time loop have at least one character for whatever reason is aware of this. And then yes. it's their mission to educate everybody to keep up and what they are willing to sacrifice to mm. get to the normality of their timeline. By the third time through the loop, um, People are starting to have deja vu. Yes. And it's creepy deja vu. It's like, I know what's about to happen. And then it does. And people have no idea how this could be possible. Dr. Crusher is hearing voices in her quarters that turn out to be echoes of past times through the loop that happen to just concentrate at that place in space and time. Anyway, long story short, they realize the mystery send themselves a message into the next loop by means of a deja vu that only data will notice and manage to avert the disaster. This is one of many episodes that are like time loops where someone early on suggests, well, should we just change course? Would that solve it? Sure. And it's Worf. He's like, should we change course? And, <laughs> and someone says, we can't afford to start second guessing ourselves. We have to proceed as we normally would, which is a stupid idea. If you're stuck in a time loop, definitely mix it up. But if you say it with enough confidence, you know, early nineties people who are still shocked by the fact that they blew up the enterprise will just go, well, yes. that sounds pretty convincing. They said that pretty, 
That person knows there what they're talking a, about. There's a great YouTube video called Worf Solves Cause and Effect, where it's a 30-second edit of the episode where they're like, what should we do? And Worf says, we should change course. And it's the end credits. <laughs> <laughs> get the Jerry Goldsmith. Come on, let's yeah. get out of here. But it's yeah, a freaking great episode because it messes with the format. Each act is a replay of the same story, but they are solving a mystery in the process. I love and, a good time loop. And it's got Kelsey Grammer at the end. He's the captain of the uh, wayward ship that's come out from... From the past, they're wearing Star Trek II uniforms. Of on the course, bridge they've been stuck in the time loop this whole time. Of course, that yeah, that, and it's become quite a popular meme at the moment using that Kelsey Grammer image. That's right, with his beard, of course. Yes. All right, let's go to DS Nine now. What's yours? Okay, well, number three for me, it, it causes a lot of controversy. This one, but I don't care. I rewatched it last. Hang on, night. number three. Is this a count up? For is me, a... for me, it's a count yeah. up. I'm going. Okay. I'm going. I'm going up. For me, a lot of people deride this episode, but I love it. And I watched it last night, and I just had the biggest smile on my face the whole time. Take me out to the Hollow Suite. Oh yeah. Are you the kidding baseball me? Baseball comedy. Baseball comedy. <laughs> You've got Wharf at any point. You know, just, uh, you know, you know, go, what do we do? How do you play the play? And you just go, find him and kill him. <laughs> you know, you've got, you've got Cisco learning a lesson not to take the game so seriously. Uh -huh. You've got, yeah, it's a bonding exercise with Esri getting, you know, she's only been there a couple of episodes, so she's trying to reconnect yeah. with everybody. Yeah, uh, this is a late DS9 episode. Speaking of our, our conversation before, this is season seven. This is season seven. This is season mm. seven. So I've sort of like mixed up my my timeline as well i'm caught that's in good. A, i'm caught in a time loop that's uh, fine Kevin. that's fine so yeah i rewatch it and it's a great mix up of everything there's a lot of location work or location work commas in the hollow uh -huh. suite the you know the summoning forth and erasing of crowd but it's that whole thing of just building up the team you know at those later seasons especially around five or six Seasons five or six of Star Trek DS9 is very heavy. You've got Dominion fighting. You've got, you know, dark episodes yeah, about how yeah. you play out in warfare. So to have this light so it was, episode. It was breaking the format of what had become a very dark war story series. They'd shifted from like political intrigue and also sort of like a lot of work on Bajor and building up the yeah. culture of Bajor and the culture of Cardassia and the culture yeah. of the Ferengi as well. But then to take it to that moved on for about two seasons worth of, or even more of this dominion war and, you know, going on, you know, quadrant level intrigue and drama. So to bring it back to just a petty dispute between Cisco and a Vulcan. And... Is it just one Vulcan? I can't remember. Yeah, it yeah. Like it, the it, whole team of Vulcans. The, the cold, the cold open. It's a whole team of Vulcans. Yeah. But and th there's that awkward moment where so like the Vulcan runner doesn't hit the home base and Nog's there looking around it and, and yeah, Odo that. Odo can't cheating say Vulcans. It. Yes, but they're all sitting down on the line and Nog goes up because he has to tag with the ball one of them yeah. and he looks around and he says which one. So he came close to saying <laughs> all right. Vulcans look alike. He almost said it. Almost I remember he goes it. down the line. Yeah. Yeah. So it opens with Cisco is visited <laughs> by a Vulcan captain of a ship who's serving on the front line. And there's tension between two of them because he's saying mm. DS9 is away from the front line. And then Cisco's going, oh, we've had, they're like measuring each other's Starfleet members. This uh, would have to be an early example of the dislikable Vulcans. Yes. 
Yes, there had been up until that point, sort of like yeah, the Vulcans were seen from a sort of like quite a you know revered point of yeah. view, especially when you've yeah. got you know Sarek and you've got whenever you bring Nimoy back, you've got to you know worship the ground that man walked. That's on. what I remember about this is it was almost sacrilegious that one of these <laughs> core races that was this. It was the favorite character in the original series. They are the villains in this episode. Very much so. And very much yeah. that, you know, antagonizing through, mm. you know, you're just a human. And they also lean into the fact of how superior strength they are as well. So yeah. because it had been established that there hadn't been a baseball game for, there was like an outpost, a colony that started it up. But it, it hadn't been played for over a hundred years or something like that, longer than that. So to have a hollow sweet program of it, they challenge each other to a game of a uh, baseball and everyone gets mm. to try out and no one's played before, only Jake Cassidy. Cassidy's quite good with the in, in the game. But they they all learn and it's about, you know, Cisco learning to enjoy the game, not take it so seriously. You've got, you know, uh Nog. And, and Rom building their family relationship. It's a great one just to go, these are the characters that we love for six years. Let's introduce Esri into the group and, you know, find the fun of it. And it's something, like you said, that DS9 could do it yeah. because it spent so much time working all their characters and they had such a uniformly strong cast of actors to play these characters. I mean, that's a whole other episode where we talk about you know, certain characters who are stronger than say other characters. Yeah, I'm not yeah, mentioning yeah, yeah. any names, Harry. No, no, Kim. we'll get there, but yeah. I'm not mentioning <laughs> any clarinet players. <laughs> no clarinet players at all. No, no ensigns who are unpromotable will be mentioned. <laughs> Through lack of personality. Oh, I'm sorry. That was a bit harsh on that first episode. That was a bit harsh. I have to say though, it has one of the hallmarks of a mixing it up episode in that Nothing happens, but at the same time, for the characters, so much happens. Like Very the, much so. The stakes in the universe couldn't be lower. Yes. But the character growth, or what we learn about the characters by having them all be fish out of water for an episode, couldn't be greater. Dare um, I say, Kevin, it's about the friends they've made along, they've made along the, the way. way. Along <laughs> the way to the ninth inning. Bottom of the ninth. Yeah. Yeah. So what's your, what's your number two? I suspect we are going to match on this one. It is Deep Space Nine season six, episode 13, far beyond the stars. Oh, look, I was looking at that one, but I thought that you would hit that one. So All I, right. I made a clever tactical move there. Yes. Good, good. Um, I'm glad you brought it up because it is phenomenal. If yeah. I were ranking these in terms of level of success as an episode, this would be my number one. Yeah. This is the character where, almost without explanation, Cisco, who is down in the dumps about the war, he's saying those things starship captains and space station captains sometimes say of like, maybe, maybe it's time I hung up my, yeah. uh, my uniform. I'm not sure if I can take this anymore. And then he starts hallucinating mm. that he is in the 1950s and he is a science fiction writer named Benny Russell. And these hallucinations quickly escalate to the point where he is living that alternate reality or that, that fantasy in which not only does Cisco impersonate Benny Russell, but all of the other characters slash actors, regulars in the show take on new personas as well. All of them out of their alien makeup and, and playing completely different characters 
and all of them interesting, rich, likable characters. I rewatched this one last night and I had to say, I would watch the show in which all of these characters were regulars. Oh, yeah. If they just wrote a new science fiction episode every week and this like magazine was the framing device, I would love these characters to see these every week. Like I was just saying before, it yeah. shows just what a stellar group of experienced actors they had. Yeah. You know, yeah. Avery Brooks, Rene Bourgeois. You know, Armin yes. Shimmerman, these guys have, you know, Terry Farrell, who'd been around, she was a hardworking actor, yeah. guest spots on Quantum Leap and all these other things. So you've had serious actors who'd been working their asses off for a long time and they came into this ready to work. And when they could yes. do a silly episode, like playing baseball, they would, when they could hit a hard episode like this one, oh, yep. they'd bring their A game. So directed by Avery Brooks, yes. who was in every scene, if not every shot almost yeah. of this episode as well. So what a huge lift for, for that guy. And ultimately the story is Benny Russell is inspired to write a story about a space station and a black captain named Benjamin Sisko. And he's and a sci-fi writer in he's the a sci -fi writer, yeah. 1950s. 50s, yeah. yeah. And his story is at first rejected because it is unbelievable that there would be a space station <laughs> commander who is black and one of his colleagues i think it is the one being played by miles o'brien or cole meany he says why don't you just make it all a dream <laughs> and benny goes oh, would that make a difference and his editor goes well it just might it's someone dreaming of a better world yes and so the fact that it has not actually happened it is someone's dream makes it okay to put in print in this time and place. At least that's what the editor concludes. And what a powerful allegory for Star Trek itself that over the years at its best, Star Trek is able to say something about our society that is not possible to tackle directly or, or that the audience will not be receptive to it if tackled directly, but they can treat it as a dream, as an allegory, as a exploration of the possible and the audience is willing to go there. Yeah, it's fascinating because it's been sprouted by so many extreme pundits about since when was science fiction political or since when uh, was Star Trek ever political and are they going pretty much from day one uh -huh, and yep. each of them had their own agenda within that political message of progress and equality, especially at the nineties as well. It was quite still limited in many ways. But yes. especially giving that platform to go, you know what, not only are we making this big, powerful decision in the nineties to have a, our captain be a man of color, be black, but also we will deal with those stories. And they sprinkled them throughout that seven years of Deep Space Nine to really show issues, even though they're in the, you know, the far flung future, those yeah. issues can resonate here. And this one is. It wears its emotional heart on its sleeve and it does it's it so well. It's never more front and center than in, a, in this episode. Yeah. And they do so well with it. But this... it's never preachy. I mean, I'm all yeah. for a bit of a preach myself, but it is done in such a beautiful way. It is written so well, so powerful to reflect. This has, this has the same power as another favorite episode of mine that we won't talk about 
unless it's it's not on your list because it's a TNG episode, <laughs> but it, it's The Inner Light, which is many people's favorite TNG episode. Captain Picard gets mentally transported by an alien probe and lives an entire life based on the historical records of a now extinct society Rush. and then comes back to himself and only minutes have passed. But he has lived an entire lifetime with an entire family and it is it is lost to him. And this Far Beyond the Stars does that same trick of Cisco comes back and he has fully emotionally invested in this other person, this other reality he has been living as. And now he's the only person who remembers it. And that, that sense of loss, that feeling of the last page of your favorite book, and you can never read it for the first time again. Yeah, It's all that power plus this social justice message that is, that is brought to life so powerfully. In the end, Benny Russell's editor does put the story forward, but the owner of the sci-fi magazine has the edition pulped because he does not like the story. And in an incredible, probably the strongest acting moment in the entire series of DS9, with the camera right in his face, every book breaks down. Mm. I have watched that episode at least five times, and I can't watch it without crying. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Absolutely beautiful. And just the respect that the show gave to Brooks as an artist and as an advocate and as a storyteller, you know, yeah. and not just pigeonholing people going, you are this figurehead to go, no, you have a voice, you have a creativity, you have an intelligence and you can share that and you can educate us through being given a platform to do that. And it all comes to a head in that magical episode in season six. This, this episode has a direct link to Strange New Worlds this week because the book, the storybook, The Elysian Kingdom, has written by Benny Russell on the cover. That's so right. So this, for the first time, establishes that author, at least in Star Trek canon, as a real person who actually lived, whereas up until this point, the assumption was it was just a figment of of the prophet's imagination. And so, yeah, real person now, at least in, in the Star Trek universe. Whole chance for a spin-off prequel series. Yeah. Wrote DS9 and also wrote, uh, the Elysian Kingdom. The Elysian Kingdom. <laughs> there we go. What range? What range? <laughs> you do fantasy and sci-fi. But your can he one? do Klingon the kitchen sink drama? Oh let's, yeah. Yeah. That's let's the challenge out. for you, Benny Russell. Next up, this one relates. I think the most closely to the Elysian Kingdom, it's a D Space Nine season four, Our Man Bashir. All right. I want to hear all about this because I remember this episode exists, but I could not tell you much about it. So whereas Elysian Kingdom leans into the fantasy tropes, this is out and out Bond. It is all James Bond. And coming from someone who's just finished doing a comedy festival season in Melbourne with our tribute show to James Bond, it was, it was, yeah, it was a joy to go back and watch that last night. So it's similar to Elysian in the ways of we establish, you know, with establishment of all the characters, something scientific, something unknown happens. Uh -huh. And so the characters we know are their personality is gone and they are becoming these holodeck characters on Julian Bashir's James Bond style holodeck suite program. Right. So it really is a direct match. Yeah. That's so rare. Like this thing of characters being transposed into a piece of in-universe fiction. Yes. That's, that's not something you see that often. And it's that thing that I was talking about earlier. It's that mix of 
embracing the James Bond tropes. So yeah. you've got the saucy name for the female assistant. We've got the henchman with the eye patch. You've got the slightly Mandarin dressed in inverted commas, evil super genius. You've got the uh -huh. big board of the globe lighting up all those type of things. There's a casino caper in this there, one, isn't there? That's a, that's a different episode. Oh, uh, okay. Uh, right. Uh, uh, spoilers for coming ooh, up, ooh, sorry. Uh, but we do go <laughs> to the you know, French casino and that's matched with the people on DS9 solving the problem. So basically the cold opener is Bashir acting out his bond fantasy. In comes Garrick, the great. Garrick, one of the greatest characters in Star Trek history, coming in mm. and looking at it going, what the hell are you doing? We're meant to be having you know, our usual drinks and dinner. And he gets caught up in it when they come back from the ad break. The crew of the runabout is meant to be coming back to Deep Space Nine, but there's something going on and there's an explosion. They can't get out. They try and beam them out, but while they do, they're caught. And so they have to put all the programming into Deep Space Nine, but the memories are not there. And where are the memories? All that dense sci-fi, scientific gobbledygook. And then <laughs> Some techno babble to justify the... Exactly. Uh, the, uh, so we've got premise. that all going on while we've yeah. got Bashir and Garrick acting out this James Bond-style scene with all the characters that we know. So Jadzia Dax, Kira, War, O'Brien, and Cisco. Are inhabiting those characters within the Bond. Well, Bond, I do in inverted commas. Just yeah, assume, yeah. listeners, whenever I say Bond, I'm doing inverted commas. So the regular actors get to have the fun, like in the Elysium Tale, of playing these different characters. So Kira is now this Russian agent. You've got Worf as the number two to the evil genius. And that evil genius is, of course, played with so much relish. I think they had relish, had a slice of ham, add more relish than another <laughs> slice of ham. Avery Brooks just chewing all the scenery, which was all covered in his relish, playing this you know, mad scientist and his inflections and hand gestures were just outstanding. So it's that whole mix up. And then there's the scientific explanation of how we can solve all this. So you've got, you know, you've got Rom and Odo all trying to sort out that on the other end. So it's a great way to. So is there a ticking clock within the holodeck thing that, well, yeah, that, that the whole people thing... outside of it need to solve? So it the safety, particular... the safety's off. So Bashir has to make sure that yeah. no characters can die. And a lot of them are playing villains. So they have to keep the characters alive. So um, he needs to do the perfect run of his favorite video. He game. needs to do the perfect run. And as he goes <laughs> along. This is the thing. So in the Elysium tale, it's the doctor and chief engineer, and they hadn't really had much time together. So it's kind of like they find each other and they go, let's solve this, which is okay. And you have fun moments like, you know, the chief engineer doing the whole, like I talked about earlier, the magic, which is actually yeah. just transporting yeah. them to the cargo bay. But this is, you've got an established relationship. You've got Garrick, you've got Bashir. They've known each other for years. And so as they go through this, Garrick's there going, look, you can't save them all. It's better if we can save most of them, if we have to lose some along. And so it's that whole, they learn about each other and their emotional journey is affected by this. So it's a case of by the end of the episode, everyone goes back to normal, but the great thing about it and what all stories should be, 
Garrick and Bashir have moved forward with their relationship, mm -hmm. which is yeah. really powerful. And it, of course it ends with a wonderful nod to, to bond. So Garrick's there going, we should do drinks. He goes, yeah, well, at the same place, same time. He goes, no, let's actually do it within the hollow suite because at the start of the episode, Garrick doesn't get the hollow suite, but he gets it now and they go, let's do it. Shall we do another, you know, Julian Bashir secret agent mission? And Bashir goes, well, you know, Julian Bashir secret agent will return just like, <laughs> and that's the end of the episode. You go, brilliant, yeah. great, tied yes. up in a little bow. You've got all your sides gobbledygook. You've got your fantasy acting out the James Bond genre and the, our two characters who have been through it all together, Garrick and Bashir actually evolve and their character and their friendship strengthens. So yeah. I'm willing to call it now. This is the best match for the Elysian Kingdom. It's interesting to me that this is one of your favorite episodes of your favorite series mm. of Star Trek. And at the start, you were saying the Elysian Kingdom was not the highest of the highs, like of a series of strong episodes, it was the least strong for you. Mm. And is the difference really just where in this series these episodes happen? Because by the time we play our man Bashir, getting to see these now super familiar characters and actors pushed into a new place and having fun with each other in a new way, mm. that is like... It's working on, on, for the audience on like three different levels. Yeah. Whereas in the Elysian Kingdom, it felt, I don't want to be unkind because I really did enjoy this episode. Me too. But if I were to try and criticize it, I would say it felt a little self-indulgent that the actors were having more fun than the audience <laughs> because they were getting to play these one-off wild characters with wild costumes. And we were like, oh, we were just getting to know you. Yeah, exactly. And uh, that core journey. It was just the doctor's journey on his own to find his yeah. daughter. We didn't have that bond like with Bashir and Garrick. So maybe yeah, if... Hammer, Hammer and Mbenga, they like in the moments where they teamed up, it was sweet, but they were very few. Very few. Moments. And we hadn't yeah. seen that relationship build. It would have no, been no. more powerful if instead of the end goal was to find his daughter, what yeah. if he went on this journey with his daughter? Yeah. So his daughter was there along the way, as opposed to her being the mystery that he had to solve. Yeah. That was, so that could have been this, their final journey together was doing yeah. this, actually reenacting their adventure. Okay, cool. I'm going to move forward to a Star Trek Voyager now. I'm Excellent. glad we're going to come back to DS9 for your favorite, because this for me is the weakest of the bunch. And I bring it just because it is such a departure from the formula of this series. And in that, it is perhaps the most unusual episode of Star Trek ever. And that's saying a lot. I struggle to see something that isn't almost not Star Trek as much as this episode, which is season five, episode 23, 1159, which is a story of Captain Catherine Janeway's ancestor who on New Year's Eve 2000, so number 31st, 2000 gets wrapped up in a, uh, we'll call it a, a local zoning conflict. <laughs> she is driving across America in a broken down old car and she barely makes it into this town on fumes in Indiana. And it just so happens that in this town, they are building what is to be called the Millennium Gate, which is going to be built on earth, a experimental habitat 
that is a prototype for future Mars habitat. Yes. So it's a self-contained biome. And they're going to build it in this town in Iowa. But to do it, they need to knock down a bunch of local community buildings. And there's one holdout, the old man with the bookstore who doesn't believe in technology. He's not going to sell. Of course. He doesn't want to hear about this future on other planets. He thinks there's plenty of problems to be solved right here on Earth. And he's not going to sell. This guy's name is Janeway. And Catherine Janeway's ancestor ends up marrying him, but uh, that doesn't happen in this episode. The framing device is in the future on the, on the, on the Starship Voyager. Catherine Janeway is telling the story of her ancestor and it turns out she's got it all wrong. <laughs> the story has been passed down through generations by her family and it makes this person into a larger than life hero. Mm who single-handedly made the Millennium Gate project come to life. She lobbied for it. She changed minds. She did designs. She was the driving force. And then we see through flashback that this impression is completely incorrect. She was just a normal person. She was a trained astronaut, but she never flew. She just happened to be in the right place at the right time. All she did was convince this guy to make room for the future and agree to sell his bookstore so that the project could be built. Yeah. And in the framing device, Janeway discovers this truth, is disillusioned that the past she believed she came from was a myth. Yeah. And is depressed because of it. And then the crew rallies around her by late one night over coffees, just telling stories about their own ancestors and their own mythical backgrounds, and then convincing Janeway that uh, the fact that her ancestor inspired her to become an explorer in Starfleet makes her a hero all by itself. And almost the truth almost doesn't matter. Exactly. It's the stories that drive us that does matter. This episode of Star Trek mostly takes place in the year 2000, yes. which at the time this aired was only one and a half years in the future. So the, the things they were predicting, like the Millennium Gate, and there's a, there's a quote I love, we can email every computer within 100 miles. It'll take just a few hours. It's easy. They were, they were making up science fiction about 1.5 years in the future, and never before has Star Trek played so close to the future with stuff that they knew would be proven wrong. And so immediately... Everything they set up would become fictitious um, yeah. past canon rather than hopeful future canon. There is no science fiction in this, apart from the fact that people are on a starship in the future telling stories about this. The framing device is in our Star Trek universe, but the bulk of this, like three quarters of this episode, takes place in effectively the here and now about ordinary people driving cars and using laptops and arguing about um, city planning. And uh, it is so weird. Kate Mulgrew, she underplays it beautifully. Yes. It has different mannerisms and a different personality. She's a lot more low status. And it's interesting. I'm not sure it's a strong enough characterization that I invested heavily in the futures of any of these people. And this is why I say this is a weaker episode. I feel like it really hinges on you caring about these people in the year 2000. And I don't really end up caring about them by the end of the episode, sadly. But it is beautifully produced. Mm. The actual like cinematography of snowy winter nights in Indiana and a failing bookstore and construction equipment blockaded by one man holding back the future. It is beautifully shot. It is a gorgeous episode to look at, but ultimately I think it fails as a story. Yeah. Yeah. I do remember 
that one vaguely with my watching of Voyager. And I always found that we as Star Trek fans were very blessed, but a lot of us are sort of like I've seemed to have forgotten how lucky we were to get an actor of the quality of Kate Mulgrew for the time we had her on Voyager. And, and we still have her today in Prodigy. She's back. Yes, voiceover and all. Give her her own series. Come on, let's see. Let's see Admiral Janeway. <laughs> yeah, she's done a time on Orange is the New Black. She's ready to get back into it. Yeah. Admiral Janeway, I don't know if you've seen the season finale of Prodigy season one, but Admiral Janeway, spoilers, makes an appearance. Oh, great. Yes. That's all In the, the flesh, not the hologram. Oh, excellent. Good. Yes. That's what yes. we want to hear. Good work. Well done, Star Trek. But yeah. What's your number one? My number one is, yes, we mentioned it earlier from season seven. It's the last great fun episode before we go into the heavy SHIT of the final six or seven episodes of yeah. the final season of DS9. Bada bing, bada bang. Uh, that is, and it, right. but a big but a bang is one of my favorite episodes of Deep Space Nine, a Star Trek of all time. It is heist. It is set in the 1960s in the Hollow Suite because during the final couple of years of Deep Space Nine, they introduce the character of Vic Fontaine. Yes, uh, the lounge singer at Las Vegas, played by oh James Darren from yep. the Time Tunnel. Blah. What's the Time Tunnel? I don't know that. Time reference. Tunnel, great show from the 60s. Basically, forerunner to all the big time travel shows later on. Time Tunnel, basically, two guys work at a military installation practicing time travel. They get stuck in a machine and they travel through time. They're stuck in this time tunnel and each episode they land in a new period of time and their scientists and medical team back in modern times are trying to pull them back. This sounds very familiar. This sounds like Quantum Leap before its time. It's very much Quantum Leap before its time. It's the same company that did Land of the Giants and stuff like that. So yeah, it only ran for a season, but... I had no idea he was a genre stalwart. Yes, yeah. he was. And he, yeah, so it was a good tip to the hat to the sci-fi that came before. So basically at this time, the setup is Vic Fontaine's Hollow Suite is running all the time. So... He is a hologram that is aware that he is a hologram. He broke his programming pretty much, and he knows that he is just a mix of photons and electrons and light and stuff like that. He is aware that he is on a he is a holodeck program on a spaceship in the middle of a big universe, and they all come to visit him, and it becomes the new Quarks. Poor Quark. Poor, poor Quark. But he's got big plans ahead for him. So it's been <laughs> on all this time. And during that time, there's something called a jack-in-the-box, which yeah. is if it's open too long or it runs too long, this new program is initiated to mix things up, I say in inverted commas. So wow. just out of the blue, Vic's there singing a song in front of Julian and uh, Brian. Um, but then instantly everything changes. Saucy dancers come out and there's a lot more of a rough crowd. And it turns out that this program has been initiated and Vic's program has changed and he's lost his job. And this gangster has taken over the casino where Vic works and he isn't allowed to work at any other casino. So they get in contact with the guy who created the program. And the only way you could break the program is actually within the reality of the Hollow Suite. So they all get together because they've all of the crew of Deep Space Nine have been affected in some way. Nog has recently lost his legs, spoilers, uh, during the war. And Vic yep. 
helped him go get over or deal with his post-traumatic stress. Kira and Odo finally get together thanks to the help of Vic and his sultry singing, all this type of stuff. And so they all agree to help Vic out to come up with a heist. And the only one that hold out who has never been into Vic's bar is Cisco. And this relates back to your second choice. It takes a while for Cisco to reveal to Cassidy because Cassidy loves going to Vic's. Why mm. don't you want to go there? Why don't you like it? And Cisco reveals it's 1960s. Of course. It's 1960s yeah. America. Yeah. Sure. You'd let. We weren't welcome there. Yeah. We weren't welcome there. We were allowed to perform there. We were allowed to be the janitors, but we were definitely not allowed to be a customer or anything like that. And so it's a whole discussion about this is what it should have been and Cisco going, it's not real and all this type of stuff. But in the end, Cassidy sort of like convinces him that this is what we can do and where we are and where we've come. And so Cisco helps out and it's got this beautiful shot. You've got like a brassy big band version of the Star Trek theme as they slow motion walk through the promenade, all dressed up in there. It's all coming back to me. Yep. Yeah. And just as they walk in the shot, the camera angles close. You've got, and Avery Brooks knows how to sell it. Just as he comes in the shot in close up, he just flicks his collar. Oh, and they go in and all the thing of usual heist movies happen that everything doesn't go according to plan, but how they improvise their way through it. Don't want to give too much away, but I have. At the end, yep. you get to hear the beautiful singing voice of Avery Brooks as he sings along with James Darren. And they sing beautifully together. The best is yet the to come. The best is yet to come. Yeah. yeah. I love it. It's one of my favorite episodes. There are some darker, deeper, like Pale Moonlight is a great episode. Beyond the Stars. I love Trials and Tribulations. All yeah. this great stuff, the duet from season one, incredible, dark, powerful episodes, the silliness of Trials and Tribulation. But this one for me, it's so earnest. It's yes. so earnest. There's so much time there going, we need to do this for Vic. We need to help Vic. And they're also Star Trek earnest about a hologram, which I love. Yeah. It's another episode where like the big picture story, the consequential stuff in season long arc is put on pause. Mm. Again, it's a whole thing. It's a much ado about nothing, but that investment they put into this hologram and it's played so beautifully. It's a great change because everyone in Star Trek, for the most part, speaks in a similar way or they address each other in a similar way. Even if they are friends or if they're enemies or if they're lovers, Star Trek has a, especially within the nineties, had a small parameter that they worked within, but bringing in a character like Vic Fontaine opens up just the way he speaks in that 1960s Vegas singer yeah. style, all the nicknames and phrases just mixes up how they all address it. And having that balance of them, like Bashir and O'Brien speaking very earnestly in 24th century dialogue to yeah. Vic Fontaine's, hey, Pally, what's going on? It's a great fun episode before we go into the resolution of seven seasons of Deep Space Nine. It's the last fun episode before i'm reminded it's not a fun episode exactly but i am reminded of the third to last episode of voyager where the fate of neelix is decided yes so this comedic character who lives in the mess hall and like vic fontaine is like the unofficial counselor for the crew and he helps people work through their problems he doesn't really have a place in the ultimate denouement of that series of how they get home to earth yeah and so two episodes before the end they find uh, his people living on an asteroid colony of some kind and he makes the hard decision to to stay with them to stay behind that's right and, 
And this character literally gets off the ship two episodes before the end of the series. <laughs> and yeah, it feels very much the same of look, this is all going somewhere, but we owe one of our, one of our side characters almost an ending of their own. Yeah. Yeah. And it's also that case of all those elements that they used in our man Bashir of the gimmicks. So it's all the gimmicks of, and all the, of the format of a heist movie, which are one of my favorites, Ocean's Eleven, the score, all those type of great heist movies. It's got yeah. all those elements there. So you do the lead in of how it's meant to go. And then when it starts to play out, things go awry. It's a, yeah, it's a cute little mixing things up a bit. So the characters put in that situation and so how they play up whatever role they're playing is, uh, yeah. is a great deal of fun. Should I read anything into the fact that when musing on what are episodes of Star Trek that broke the mold or broke the format, all three of yours were holodeck episodes on Deep Space Nine? It's a, it's a case of, I need to watch more than just the original movies and Star Trek Deep Space Nine, but it also that case of, especially cause I was thinking about it. Within the nineties, the hollow deck became like the magic yeah. instrument that they could It's the go one impossible thing that makes interesting things possible. Exactly. And so yeah. that means they could do all this type of genre stuff, character swap around, and they could do scientific gobbledygook. And yeah. so I'm there going, they didn't have the technology yet in the original series era or pre-original series for Strange New Worlds. So how do they get to that point? And yeah. they literally use the thing of, it is the mysterious, read in inverted commas, magical, being yeah. within a mysterious, wink, wink, magical mist yeah. who can do all this type of stuff, can completely change the set, can completely change characters. So that would be explained away in next gen and stuff like that with the holodeck, but here they mm, don't have that. Yep. So they go, it's an omnipotent creature that is intelligent so far and advanced. We don't understand it. So we perceive it as magical. Yeah. Awesome. Oh, what a, a marvelously very six episodes to go down memory lane. Very much so. Are. And thank you for giving me a list, giving me at least a cause and effect to go and yeah. uh, check oh, out. Essential. Cause and effect is essential. Definitely. We've got two episodes left of Strange New Worlds this season. I don't know about you, but I'm not ready for it to be over. No, no. Look, look, well, yeah, are you kidding me? Come on. Yeah. Let's go back to the 90s era. Let's get, tw let's knock out 24 episodes. Easy. Yeah. Yes, please. <laughs> but I'm very much looking forward to doing this again and having our debrief on the most recent episode and what springs from our mind that connects us back to the broader trick universe. Likewise. Thanks, Rob. Thank you, Kev.